Hello Brooklyn, how you doing? You where you going? We cannot come to. And if I can, I'ma be your man. You can be my lady and have my baby and drive my car. You got me crazy. Whatever so you going, baby, you going? just take me. Cause I'm so taken. Hello Nets fans, how you doing? It's the Russell and Fro podcast. Russell here and Fro there. This is Brett the Man Bun Garofalo, seated thousands of miles apart from my co-host and good friend, Carl the Talent Jackson. Uh, We've got some topics to cover this evening. Uh, There have been some positives this season. I would say if we uh, were forced to choose, if there had been more negatives than positives, uh, we'd lean towards the negative side. But really, Nets fans, what fan base is better equipped to find positivity amongst a sea of negativity, especially in a season with expectations that aren't being reached? I can't think of one. So tonight, we get back to our Nets fans' roots, and I think we're going to talk through some of the positives and the negatives, and uh, you know, hopefully make everybody feel a little bit better about this season or maybe even a little bit worse. Who knows where this is going to go? I would love to begin, as we typically do, by asking Carl, how you doing? Brett, I am so excited the Nats are back from their West Coast swing. Uh, Do you remember last year when we recorded a podcast after the double overtime game in Portland? And, and I believe we were recording at like 2 a.m. Well, we recorded half the podcast before the game and we sounded, you know, chipper and uh, energetic. And then uh, we recorded the first half of the podcast after and I sounded like, uh, you know, a reanimated corpse. <laughs> no hope, darkness fading in. <laughs> well, uh, I'm pretty sure that the time that we recorded that podcast is now the time that I wake up for the day. So uh, you got, you're going to give me a, maybe, you know, semi-lucid here as we were recording this at the late hours of 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to muddle through. We're going to get there. That should have been the Shabazz Napier revenge game. Instead, it ended up being the Yusuf Nurkic brutal injury game. Do you remember that? Oh, my God. Yes, I absolutely do. That was, that was pretty rough. It was, uh, it, you know, I, I still feel like Shabazz... I'm mostly bummed that his um, endorsement deal with uh, Stumptown Coffee did not travel with him to Brooklyn because I feel like you really couldn't have, uh, you know, at a better parallel place to peddle, I don't know, artisanal coffee. But what can we do? Plus, there are a few names more marketable than Shabazz as well. But yeah, we lost that game. Yusuf has not played an NBA game since. The Blazers are playing more minutes at center with Hassan Whiteside, and they just signed Carmelo Anthony. So maybe things aren't so bad, Nets fans, now that I'm talking through this. That's true. Although Hassan Whiteside is the player in question that I was just asking you whether or not uh, turtleneck sweaters are back. He is rocking one on the bench right now in Milwaukee. So... Yeah, that's maybe we do want him on our bench, but it really, this I mean, is an unexpected positive. At least we are not the Portland Trailblazers this season. There's a positive. That's fans. Can we can we talk about so so we're going to go into positives and negatives, and I'm just going to start by being relentlessly negative for like one second with like kind of three things that are just going to build into one thing. But um, I think that this year, you know, brings the promise and the allure of you know Kevin Durant is on the bench, and there's actual championship aspirations next season. And so I don't want to lose sight of that, but like, can we just talk for a second about how much less fun this team is than last season's? And can we talk about maybe one underrated reason 
And that's the lack of Damari Carroll. And I'm not talking about Damari Carroll's like passing or his court savvy or anything like that. Like the lack of Damari Carroll wearing his alligator skin shoes and his capri pants and his like French boating jackets and his like psychedelic headbands on the bench is it's really bumming me out. I don't feel like anybody's quite in that class. Well, not only that, but completely owning it too. Walking to the stadium, walking around Brooklyn, filming himself saying, I'm out here doing this every day. I do this every day. And he's doing it every day. But for the San Antonio Spurs. And I don't know if you've watched any Spurs games. His hair is incredible this season. I bet it's great. I've never been to San Antonio. I don't mean to besmirch its fashion sense as a community, but I just have to feel like his sense of fashion is, is lost upon them. I think it's taken him to a whole new level. I think in Brooklyn, he was trying very, very hard because he had to elevate his game above New York, one of the fashion meccas of the world, if not the fashion mecca. In San Antonio, like you said, it doesn't matter. The entire city skyline is the color of warm poop. That's their city. His hair has three different layers to it. There's white things in it. I have no idea what those are. And he's nailing threes and playing defense. It's a joy to watch. I can't take my eyes off him when I'm watching Spurs games. Can I just interrupt you to just say that uh, Carmelo Anthony just took Brooke Lopez to the rack off a hesitation move, except that on the replay, I don't think it was actually a hesitation move. I think he just lost his dribble. <laughs> but then he did blow by Brooke Lopez, so that's something. Well, we also mentioned Brooke Lopez. There's a positive Nets fans. Uh, absolutely. So, all right. So getting back to my my thesis here, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm not going with a uh, lush double IPA today. I'm going with a double shush instead also from frost beer work so um you know just keep that in mind um so aside from the sartorial uh you know consequences i think two things have come to mind uh for me one is you know i forgot how kind of annoying it can be to root for a team with expectations and i I do feel like this is a profoundly weird year for the nets because there are all these expectations that we knew weren't going to be realized this season. So there's really no opportunity for a payoff right now, but at the same time, like there's real stakes because what happens if it just doesn't come together. And so that just creates for some odd consequences. And particularly I think with the way that the Nets manage injuries and you look at, you know, a situation like Kyrie Irving, where it's like, does it make sense for him to be coming back now from his shoulder impingement? Probably not. I don't know what that is, but at the same time, it's, you know, the team is, is looking pretty lost without him uh, with the exception of when they get to play Charlotte. Um, so, you know, it, it just kind of creates this weird, like, I think the word is ennui, uh, which is some kind of French or something like where you're just sort of like stuck in limbo, kind of waiting and waiting for something to happen. I don't know. Um, so that's one part of it. And then I think the second part is, you know, we can talk about, Kyrie's impact. And, and I'm absolutely not, uh, you know, subscribing to the theory of like, well, look at how good Boston is doing right now. And then look at, you know, where Brooklyn is and, you know, Kyrie is clearly the reason I'm, I'm not at all subscribing to that. Uh, but I do feel like there's, there's a certain irony, at least to me in sort of having watched D'Angelo Russell for all of last year, having kind of spent time worrying and being concerned about all of the things that D'Angelo Russell couldn't do getting somebody like Kyrie Irving, who I think does all of the things that D'Angelo Russell did and all of the things that he couldn't do at an extremely high level. So, you know, in addition to shooting threes and, and, you know, being able to run the offense, he's getting to the rack, he's putting pressure on the rim. He's, uh, you know, 
got the most incredible handles I've ever seen in the gym. And yet it just makes the offense, I feel like, much, much less fun to watch because he's he's almost just too good. Because, uh, you know, if him isoing is more efficient offense, frankly, than getting a lot of the other guys involved. And that's probably a good thing in terms of, you know, trying to win a championship. But it's kind of a tough thing to watch from the perspective of, like, I, I just feel like there's a lot less ball movement. There's a lot less passing. There's a lot less, like, working guys off, off the ball. I don't, I don't know. Like, what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts there? This might go a little bit off the rails, but it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. We have rails. No, I don't think so. It's a good point. This might actually get back on the rails. This might be a salient point. We'll see. Um, I, so I read an article on five thirty-eight the other day, I believe it was by Neil Payne. And they were talking about how the pick and roll has changed in the past, I think five to seven years. And the one change that they highlighted was what players were involved in the pick and roll. Your traditional pick and roll, you're thinking of Stockton Malone, you're thinking of Tony Parker, Tony Longoria, and Tim Duncan. You're thinking of a small man in a power forward, power forward diving towards the rim, getting fouled or the guard, faking the pass, pulling up for a wide open elbow two. The more efficient offenses have been using two guards or two smalls or two ball handlers in the pick and roll. And it's been producing points at a slightly more efficient clip, which over the course of a season can lead to a win or two. And lo and behold, the team that's done this the most effectively and started doing it before most of the other teams of the Houston Rockets, who have always had a guard-heavy, guard-dominated offense, whether it was Chris Paul and James Harden, uh, whether it's Russell Westbrook and James Harden. And th- the factors for that were quite interesting. It wasn't one thing or the other. Like You would think, oh, okay, these guys are ball handlers, so they're going to hold on to the ball a little bit better. They're less prone to turning it over, and they're a little bit more crafty. So maybe they're getting fouled, or they can find those holes to the rim. Or they're going to be better shooters, because guards tend to be better shooters, so they can pull up quickly and hit elbow twos. Or they're going to be a threat from the three-point range, so it pulls the defense out, and they're able to pass out of that. But it ended up being a combination of all of those things. They shot a little bit better from three. They got to the line at a little bit of a higher clip, and they turned it over less, because they're better at handling the ball. And all of those things together led to a higher points per possession on guard and guard pick and rolls. And that's something that the Nets don't seem to have done much of this season. Uh, Most of the pick and rolls seem intent on getting DeAndre Jordan and Jared Allen and even Nick Claxton involved in the offense and seeing if we can get lob plays to those guys uh, or give Kyrie a little bit of space to work in the lane. And I think if we really want some of these dominant ball handling two three guard lineups to work the nets are going to have to look at completely taking guys like jared allen and deandre jordan out of the offense to run what should be a more efficient a more effective pick and roll which might even help the nets with some of their turnover issues that i think we'll talk about later in the podcast so that that's something I've been thinking about recently. Uh, I, I don't know if that that resonates with you at all, but do you see that helping the Nets or am I off base there? No, I mean, I think, uh, well, I mean, so, so to be clear, I guess, about my point too, like I, I'm, I'm really referring almost exclusively to just the aesthetics and the sort of joy of watching them play as opposed to necessarily the efficiency or uh, effectiveness. Um, 
I do think that that would be something that could help in both areas, though, which is why it is fairly interesting. I think, you know, one thing that we were talking about uh, right before we started was, you know, I kind of posed this hypothetical. So, like, let's forget Durant's injury for a second. Let's say we could take Kevin Durant from May of last season and we could drop him onto this team right now. Um, Would you, you know, and, and, and... drop him onto this team at full strength. Are the Nets better off running a lineup, given what we've seen so far this season, are the Nets better off running a starting unit of Kyrie, Levert, Durant, Prince, and Allen? Or are they better off running Kyrie, Joe Harris, Durant, Prince, Allen? What what's your what's your take there? Because I, I have a thought that was different than what I would have said at the beginning of this season. Hmm. And that that's a really good point because what I was just talking about might solve a few issues this season, both aesthetically, turnover wise, uh, and offensive efficiency wise. But when we're thinking long term, the final form of this team has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving playing both our starting and our closing lineup. So it's not necessarily about what helps us the most this season. It's about who are the players that are going to best contribute to winning when Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are at full strength. And if you were to give me those two lineup combinations, I feel like we're in the same predicament we were last season where in order to be most effective on the court, we couldn't play all of our best players together. And we have to put the lineup out there that maximizes the talent of our two top players, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, which would be to take away guys like Karras who don't shoot as high a percentage from three, but can handle the rock much better than Joe Harris and Torian and put, Prince and Harris in there to stretch the floor, give Kevin Durant a little more breathing room, and then create some wide open looks for the Nets from our best shooters, which is a really interesting problem to have. And if we still have Karras and Spencer, maybe that type of combination is coming off the bench and we have one of the best bench units in the league. But that is a conundrum that the Nets under Kenny Atkinson have seemed to be unable to escape not being able to play their best players in crunch time and get the best five-man unit or the best production out of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting because if you look at, I mean, you know, I think you you give up something defensively with that type of lineup just in terms of, you know, Harris, I think is a, you know, I think Harris and Prince are kind of opposites to a certain extent where I think Prince is actually a fairly decent individual defender, um, that kind of struggles with making the right rotation and being in the right place at the right time. And I think Harris is a little bit the opposite where I think he has, you know, pretty decent basketball IQ, but can kind of get run out off the floor. So it depends a little bit on what you're getting in Duran and how effective he is um, defensively as, as well as uh, offensively. I think, you know, being able to run him in the pick and roll, I think solves a lot of the things that you're talking about because he's somebody that, you know, like to a certain extent, I think you could make the case that we don't know what this Nets team is until you unlock a Kyrie Durant pick and roll, and sort of everything else is in service of of that to it to a certain extent. 
which begs the question, what should the Nets be focused on this season too? And maybe they are focused on the right things and we just don't know it. And focusing on the right things means figuring out what players can play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving pick and rolls, which is going to be, uh, unless something crazy happens, then that's most effective play when we're theoretically a championship contender. And maybe that's what the Nets are doing right now. They're trying to figure out what players can stand around and still be effective when Kyrie Irving is running a pick and roll with a bigger guy, even if that guy ends up being DeAndre Jordan and Jared Allen. And so far, the answer has been not too many players. Uh, Torian Prince fits in, Joe Harris fits in, but the other players have struggled to fit into that lineup. Garrett Temple's had a few moments, but maybe that does explain some of the the weirdness, uh, the inefficiency, and the lack of excitement that we've seen and the lack of maximization of talent that we've seen from the Nets. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also like, you know, I think two things like one, you know, we talked a little bit about, and I, I know I joked about his, his passion, but I think in losing guys like Damari Carroll and Jared Dudley um, and, you know, guys who are a little bit savvier veterans and also Rondé Hollis Jefferson as well. Like I think you gave up a decent amount in terms of kind of secondary playmakers and guys who could, you know, make, more like the hockey assist type pass, like the pass to set up the pass to set up the shot, uh, as opposed to guys who are primarily playmakers on their own. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily see that secondary playmaking as a skill that the Nets really have across the board. I think they're much more set up as, you know, looking, looking to have as many guys that can kind of operate out of a dribble drive and, and make a play that way. Um, so it just lends itself to a lot more dribbling and, and the ball moving around a lot more. And, you know, consequently it feels like part of the, the issue is, as the Nets kind of gel, they're turning the ball over a lot more. And that, you know, is kind of messing, you know, gumming up the works, I think uh, a little bit, despite the fact that, you know, they have an incredibly efficient offense, even with the fact that they're turning the ball over at a high clip. So your point about the Nets and the Nets passing and them not looking as aesthetically pleasing this season and being less inspiring uh, doesn't just pass the eye test, but it's backed up by the stats too. And one of the guys at Nylon Calculus, Arun Balaraman, wrote a great article about some of the things that are ailing the the Nets this season and uh, making them not even in playoff contention right now in many predicted them to be outside of the model as one of the upper tier playoff teams in the Eastern Conference. And one of those things is passes per game. Last season, the Nets were eighth in the entire league. So upper third in passes per game with 309. That number this season is down to 252 passes per game. So that's over 50 less passes per game for 27th in the NBA. So only three teams are worse than the Nets in terms of overall ball movement. And in my mind, that would be totally fine if we were sacrificing offensive talents and offensive vision to put players out there that were great on the defensive end. They were active. They were getting deflections. And that's defenses in the top third of the league. So, okay, cool. You have to have a few more isolation plays. And maybe you can throw one good offensive player out there like Kyrie Irving to make sure that there's some sort of efficiency on that end. But unfortunately, that's not happening. The Nets are, have been terrible defensively, regardless of who's been out there. And that is, I would say, most exacerbated by the Nets being last in the league in turnover percentage. So we can't even take advantage of having some of those guys that are faster, can pull up from three in transition, or can get to the line and draw free throws at a higher rate. 
so it's just leading to this brand of basketball where none of the things that we do on offense and defense complement each other's strengths. And it just seems like we're slogging through these games when the effort might be there, but unfortunately the effort isn't leading to other net strengths and chaining together. So it's not really a sum of a parts type thing. And the last thing I want to point out is the nets are logging about 11.3 isolation possessions per game which is third in the league, and that's up from 9.3 last season. So they're up two isolation possessions per game, which I think we expected with Kyrie Irving out there, but that's just another number that ties into the lack of ball movement. Yeah, and, and you know, to, to be clear, like moving the basketball is not necessarily the, the end goal, like having an efficient offense is the end goal. But I think, you know, and, and I think earlier in the season, we were seeing that, that they were able to have that, efficient offense without moving the basketball. But as we've seen some of these injuries come into play, as we've seen uh, Kyrie Irving kind of come back to earth and regress toward the mean in terms of his level of play. Um, and then obviously sitting out a couple of games, like, you know, I do feel that like that impact is felt and, and it just, it just gives you something that, you know, it's, it, it's like, uh, not that I particularly enjoy quoting this guy cause he's a, he's a dickhead, but like, you know, it's like the Bobby Knight quote, like there's no such thing as a bad day on defense. Like you're going to have days when your shots don't fall. And particularly if you're a team like the Nets, that's shooting a lot of three pointers, like you're going to have ebbs and flows, you know, in terms of that particular statistic, but being able to move the ball, being able to consistently get good shots, uh, I, I feel like is just something that is able to kind of buoy you through those times where everything isn't clicking for some reason. But I think you're definitely onto something and, and you could spin it into a positive as well because the Nets haven't been terrible, but it's clear that things just, the the synergy, I guess, for lack of a, a, a better word, like the, the idea of kind of the sum of the parts or the whole being greater than the sum of the parts just isn't happening yet. Um, and so it's, you know, you can get Kyrie on an isolation and, and that's, you know, a more potent individual offensive option than they had at any point last season but I just feel like you know with some of these combinations there there isn't any kind of gain to be had by putting these guys on the floor together at the same time and I think going back to kind of that hypothetical when you you talk about bringing a Durant in like that's where I worry like that's where at the beginning of the season you know we were talking about can Karis LeVert be the third star and like now we're talking about does it make more sense for him to come off the bench? Like I think that that's a valid thing, and and it's not it's not really any disrespect to him or or you know his game or anything like that. It's just looking at kind of the complementary pieces and how many ball dominant guys do you want on the floor at, at a given time when you know they're not necessarily able to get open without the ball, uh, free themselves up, um, those kinds of things. I mean, well, so first of all, I was really hoping that that whole buildup about the person you were going to quote being a dickhead was leading up to you citing Brooklyn's beat, but that's totally fine. Um, that we went the Bobby Knight direction. I, I love Brooklyn's beat. <laughs> Got a shout about um, the. I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing in the world to be talking about. Should we be bringing Karis Levert off the bench? next season because I, I just think that's a really, really cool and intriguing one-two punch to have 
Kyrie and Durant surrounded by shooters and a rim protector in the starting lineup. And then off the bench, you have a two-guard, two-headed dragon, almost Rockets-esque lineup as long as we have some shooters and some smart players around them coming off the bench that are running a guard pick and roll. Or if we still have DeAndre Jordan next season, because we're still going to have DeAndre Jordan next season because nobody's going to trade for him. We don't have to worry about force-feeding him lobs. Just sit him in the middle and hope he doesn't screw up too badly or draw a bunch of fouls. I, I I just I think that could be a really interesting look. And before before we started talking about that, and you brought up that point. I was thinking, man, we're we're, we're almost definitely careening towards a future where we're going to have to trade Spencer and Karras to try to bring in a third star that can fit around Kyrie and Durant. But maybe that's not the master plan. Maybe the master plan is to have those two combinations of lineups that don't take anything off the table and allow the Nets to keep coming at you throughout the game, even when Kyrie and Durant are off the floor, which I think theoretically could happen. And we don't necessarily need Karis LeBert to develop into a star to be able to do that. Because I think that the combination of him and Spencer could be rather salient. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, um, you know, to, to your point or from earlier, uh, I think before we were recording, you know, it's, it's also good in a situation where, you know, Levert has his contract extension. So it's not like we'd be taking money out of his hands to, to try to do that. It's just a question of sort of maximizing it, the, the different skill sets and, you know, how kind of all the pieces fit together. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting. And, and I think, frankly, he could be more of a star type player in that role um, and potentially showcase himself to, to move on to a different team. I just, it's just different. It's just a different direction, I think, than I had thought things were going to go coming into this season. Um, and so it's a little bit of a sobering kind of reality to be talking about that. And I think, you know, the other thing, and again, not to, I know that uh, I'm in charge of negatives here, but like the, the <laughs> other thing that I feel like this, this brings me back to, and um, not to, not to tip the hand on, on some of the positives here either, but like the, the other thing is when you talk about bringing in that third star to complement those guys, like I feel like the fact that you're giving up, forget the contract that you have Deandre Jordan on the fact that you're giving up a, essentially a fifth of your, of your, of your on court lineup at any given time to either Deandre Jordan or Jared Allen, who, you know, in their best form, you know, both have the significant limitation of essentially just being a rim runner, just being a, a dunker spot guy means that you can't, you can't have that third star be somebody who plays the five. You can't have that third star necessarily be, you know, somebody who can bring a bunch of on offense as a four, but doesn't necessarily, um, you know, you know, can't necessarily defend in space. And, and it also really kind of steps on the value of a guy like Nick, Nicholas Claxton coming in who, you know, has been really fun to watch and, and really interesting to see. And, and somebody that I think in the right circumstance could be a really positive contributor, but on this team where kind of the dunker spot is taken at all times by one of those two guys, he really doesn't have a role on offense. That's not part. That's not particularly redundant. And we're not like the warriors where you can just throw JaVale McGee or 87-year-old Andrew Bogan on the court, and we can carry those folks to a championship. We really need production out of that center spot because thinking about the lineups you and I just cited, the Nets aren't going to have three 
all-star Hall of Famers on the floor around whoever's in that spot, in the dunker spot. Like you said, we're not going to have somebody that's a Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Draymond Green level out there. It's going to be most likely Spencer Karras and shooters or Kyrie Durant and shooters. So the person that we bring in is probably going to have to be a shooter first or be reduced to a Clay Thompson-esque role. And there aren't too many of those players out there to bring in and you're going to have to give up a lot to get them because shooters are valued at a premium, even if they're not the best ball handlers or they're more equipped to be a a second or a third banana on a team. They're pretty overvalued. And I think for good reason on the market, there's going to be a lot of assets that you have to attach to that. So that, that limits our options, which I think makes for easier future podcasts as we're talking about potential trade targets. If we do think it's going to go that direction. Um, But we'll, we'll see. I, I wanted to make another point too, that, I'm trying to figure out what, because I know I'm in charge of positives, what the Nets should be doing during this period where we're going to suck. Kyrie's out. Karras is out. Spencer's our entire offense. Moose is giving us nothing. What the heck can we do to look at this as an opportunity instead of a holy crap, let's just tread water so the fans don't turn on us and we can still continue, quote unquote, taking over New York. And to me, it goes back to a lot of what you were talking about earlier, where I... I think this is a, a pretty interesting moment or inflection point for the Nets to go back to what made them great and what made us all fall in love with them in the first place last year, development and playing hard. Like, screw it. I know that we sent a couple guys down to the G League. Call them back up. We're going to suck anyway. Let's once and for all figure out if we have something with guys like Rody, Musa. Let's get Clax out there and let's see if he develops into somebody that can be a rotation player in the next two years versus somebody that we have to play when there are injuries. And let's throw guys out there that are going to run around and go crazy. Right? I mean, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with you in principle. I think, you know, I think – Rody is a completely different uh, topic and, and a completely different conversation to have. And, and, you know, obviously I think there's a lot going on there, but just from a purely basketball perspective, one thing that I, I noticed, I mean, you know, part of it is obviously kind of the scouting report being out on him. So teams sort of know what to look for. But part of it I think is, is just the way that the offense is run without, without moving the ball the way that it is, there's just a lot less opportunity for some of the things that I think got him going last year, which was kind of skulking around on the baseline and and making kind of heady cuts and, and, you know, finding himself in the right place at the right time. And you look at a guy like Joe Harris, I think does a decent amount of that um, off ball and, and obviously shoots as well. But like, I just, I don't feel like there's a lot of room for that kind of play in the way that the Nets offense is running this year because, even though you're spacing the floor, you're really spacing the floor to then go clog up the lane with, you know, somebody on a drive as opposed to, you know, spacing the floor and really kind of zipping the ball around, you know, fucking Soviet hockey style and, you know, trying to get the tilt the entire defense out of position. And, and, and so I think that that's, um, I don't know, it's another thing that I just kind of miss a little bit. And I feel like that's something that, you know, uh, could have been an opportunity for Claxton to kind of put his stamp on things could have been, you know, was always sort of where I felt like, you know, Rondé was going. And I think, you know, from the limited clips I have seen of him playing in Toronto sort of has been able to get to, uh, over there. So that type of kind of energy hustle and, and, um, kind of catching the defense 
napping or, or being too spread out, I feel like is, is an element that's missing. That's a good point because the Nets are still top five in number of drives to the rim per game. So we're still, e- even with Karras and Spencer out, and what that tells Karras me, and Kyrie. Or, or sorry, Karras and Kyrie out, what what that tells me is only Rody and Musa can only make an impact if they're hitting threes and they're not hitting threes. It, it just seems like that's the only thing we're going to see. Them standing on the perimeter, hopefully giving the driver enough room or enough gravity to get around somebody and get to the rim and if they hit the wide open three awesome their time on the court was productive as long as they hold tread water on defense and if they don't then it wasn't and that completely undervalues somebody like roadie like you just said who likes to skulk around got points off of cuts got points by sneaking around folks or got points by uh, deflecting in the passing lane and making good passes out and we just don't have those players that are finding him in those seams anymore so really it seems like the one player that can come in and make an impact is claxton because if he figures out to be if he figures out a way to be the type of guy that can replace some deandre jordan's minutes uh, and can be that player at the five that blocks shots and doesn't give up 400 points in three minutes to demonis sabonis that could be a huge boon for us but it really it really limits players that are those smarter headier cutters when their job is now to just stand around and help the guard who is running the entire offense through him finds them on the perimeter yeah i mean and i mean the only the only sort of thing that i would say which is uh, a little bit obnoxious but um you know the other thing that musa or Rody could do is contribute on the defensive side of the ball and you know whether that's getting deflections or that's going after loose balls or uh, you know, forcing turnovers, like, like that could be another area that, um, pretty wide open. If anybody wants to contribute on that side, uh, David Nwaba calling your number, um, you know, perhaps somebody could play themselves onto the floor by what they're bringing on the defensive side, uh, in addition to what's there on offense. We got to play that guy more, right? Like, how is he not out there? Our defense cannot possibly I think the the offense is terrible right now, so it can't get much worse with them out there. And the defense has nowhere to go but up, so throw him out there. I mean, I agree, but I don't exactly think he's been lighting the world on fire necessarily when he's gotten minutes either. So, you know, that that's part of the problem. And, and you know, how much of an impact you can make as one guy on the defensive side of the ball when you're taking things off on the offensive end is is an open question. Well, I think what's interesting is the Nets seem to have a lot of great on-ball defenders. I think even Kyrie's a good on-ball defender. I've seen him get some deflections, some decent steals. And Nawaba's numbers show that he's a good one-on-one defender. Same thing with Torian Prince. Uh, But when it comes to team defense, there are countless clips of folks being lost or missing assignments. And I think that's another main difference between last year's team and this year's team. Because I don't think last year's team had a ton of amazing defenders on it. Ed Davis, he was awesome. Ronnie Hollis Jefferson, that dude was great. But Damari Carroll was older and slower. So was Jared Dudley. Um, D'Angelo Russell is, is long, but he's not the best defender out there. But the Nets seemed to come together and play good team ball, good team defense, and that led to deflections. Whereas we have a lot of great individuals, and that goes back to the sum of the parts conversation where those players don't seem to be fitting together to put together a great team defense where, yes, our numbers look good, shot distribution wise where we're limiting three-point attempts we're limiting shots at the rim and we're having folks take a ton of shots in the mid-range but unfortunately those teams are shooting a really really high percentage in the mid-range and i don't think that's a fluke because 
they are incredibly open shots. It's not like we're contesting those shots. They're taking those shots because they're wide open, not because they feel forced into them. And I, if I could choose one difference in the defense from last season to this season, I think it's that we're forcing the right shots, but those shots are way easier and way more open than they were. Yeah. And I think the more, I don't know, I kind of read or listen or watch um, about defense, the more I, the more, the, the clearer it is to me that, from a kind of analysis perspective, whether it, you're talking like numbers, analytics, or, you know, guys crunching film, uh, that kind of discourse, like I, I don't think we quite understand how to evaluate defense properly. And I think the biggest part of that is the, you know, it, it's a little bit like offensive rebounds and defensive rebounds where they're kind of the same stat. And usually you would expect somebody that's good at one of them to be good at the other one, but you know, on-ball defense and individual defense versus team defense are not exactly the same skill. And I think there are definitely guys, and I think you mentioned a couple of them that were on the Nets last year in terms of like Damari Carroll and uh, Jared Dudley and Ed Davis, who are not really good individual defenders, but are excellent team defenders. And I think you can brick together a few of those types of guys and end up with a really, really good defense. Um, and at the same time, kind of the flip side is you could break together. I think guys who individually, if you need to stop somebody one-on-one might have a decent shot at, at, at hanging, but are going to really struggle as a team defense. And, and that I think just negatively impacts, you know, the, the defensive complexion of a team overall. It goes back to the whole Bob Myers, Draymond Green. Are we choosing this player to be great in the regular season? Are we choosing this player to um, elevate our floor and elevate our ceiling in the playoffs? And I feel like guys like Waba and Prince are folks that you could throw in at the end of a game. If you needed to get a stop and you knew who was getting the ball, they could give you a, a couple really, really great defensive possessions then. But if you're extrapolating that out over 82 games and you're trying to find those small edges that are going to get you one or two wins and get you seeding position during the season they aren't those guys and the nets don't have a lot of those guys anymore do i want damari carroll in the playoffs uh, over somebody like a torian prince that's where it might get a little bit more debatable although i still i mean i have an undying love for damari just like every other nets fan does um so i, th- I think that's something that I have uh, that I have on my mind too. I think maybe we assumed the playoffs were going to be easier than they were, and on the flip side of that, during the regular season, having smart team defenders also has a waterfall effect where if you trust your teammates, you're not constantly going to be looking over your shoulder and therefore you're going to be focused more on your man and focused more on your own individual task. And if guys are in the right position, you don't have to constantly recover back to your guy or cover for other folks. You're moving around less too. So the team saves more energy uh, and the team focuses more on their individual assignments. And theoretically, it's going to create more turnovers and create easier buckets. So you don't have to work as hard on the offensive end. So there's just so much that comes from not playing that smart brand of defense and not trusting each other on that side of the ball. And that's one of the things that I'm worried about with Kyrie and Karras going down where the the Nets, even, even if they come back and the offense is fixed, the Nets still haven't, aren't learning anything about how we can have our best players on the court at the same time and play our best defense or play our best offense with those guys out. And I think we're learning and we're losing precious minutes to figure that out and figure out how we want to insert Durant and what players need to be here in the coming years. I think that's all very true. So 
help me out with some positives here, Brett. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. Uh, I'm just looking, you know, for something to be happy about. I have uh, one, which is the upcoming schedule that I see is Kangs, Knicks, Cavs as the next three. So I suppose that's good. Although the Nets will find a way to blow one of those and, you know, make me feel bad. But what else, what else can, what else can we look forward to? What else is a positive? Uh, do you remember where Tim Duncan was born? The Virgin Islands. Do you know what other future Hall of Famer NBA player was, is, uh, his heritage is the Virgin Islands? Uh, I do, I do not. Nicholas Devere Claxton. <laughs> you want a positive? Boom. Timmy D, Virgin Islander. Nick Claxton, Virgin Islander. His middle name, it's Devere. It's Israeli, Carl. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. That's pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. I was uh, going to guess Michael Cooper, but I don't think that's who I was even thinking of. I think I was thinking of uh, Michael Thompson, but he's from the Bahamas. Anyway, Michael Nick Claxton. Bolton? <laughs> Michael Beasley? Yeah. Nick Claxton, man. I mean, he's, I'm trying to think of positive. Nothing makes me happier than watching Nick Claxton play basketball. And at least we get to watch this dude who has high character, play his ass off, and occasionally dunk over some unsuspecting guy that's mesmerized by the three or four colors that are part of this guy's hair. Um, couple other facts that I pulled up about Nick Claxton. His dad played in the NBA, had no idea, also went to Georgia. He played a year with the Celtics in 95-96, and he's now a director of basketball operations for an AAU team. So basketball Charles family Charles Claxton, I believe, right? Yes, that is uh, Charles Claxton. And I don't think he ever shortened that to Chuck. Also DeVere or no? I, I didn't see a DeVere in there. I don't know why so- his middle name is DeVere. I wish I had a story behind that. So here's my question about, about Claxton, because I, I think he's he's – kind of fascinating to me in terms of what I want to project into him. So in the same way that I am clearly uh, became enamored with Rondi Hollis Jefferson after it sort of appeared that he was never going to develop a three point shot. Um, interesting uh, commentary on Rondé, by the way. Well, first off uh, some great stuff at Raptors HQ by our buddies, uh, Scott Levine. Um, who I almost called Zach Levine. <laughs> I should have, should have another beer. Um <laughs> Some great, great stuff on uh, by by Scott Levine, who is like just on the Rondé beat, owns it. Um, so definitely check that out. But uh, also on the, you know, I can't remember. It must have been dunked on, uh, not the Hollinger Duncan podcast. Uh, they were talking about like how much space there is in the league for guys who can't essentially shoot anymore. Um, and they cited kind of Rondé and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist as examples of that, of, of guys who I think follow sort of the Gerald Wallace uh, lineage, um, guys who are, you know, really athletic, uh, who, you know, get a lot of hustle plays, who can defend really well, can defend multiple positions, um, but can't necessarily shoot. So they can, they can, you know, attempt to bring offensive value in other ways. And I think my sort of thought on it last year was, you know, Rondé is – not the kind of guy that you necessarily want on your roster because he his his strength on a team like last year's Nets is in flexibility that he gets being able to kind of fill in for multiple people that you would sort of essentially want to upgrade on a better team. But on a team like this year's, I don't know, like I I, I miss him a little bit and I miss um, 
I, I feel like I'm glad that he's getting the opportunity he's getting with the Raptors to play alongside stretch fives. So, but and just to kind of bring this back kind of full circle, what I'm trying to build to here is looking at Nick Claxton, like he's got a very interesting player profile to me because not really a shooter, uh, but he's kind of a stretch big in the sense that he can handle the ball. Like I've never seen somebody that's a big in the way that he's a big have kind of the handle that he does. So he, he can get the ball kind of out in space and away from the basket and make things happen. He's not just a rim roller, but I don't really feel like you could play him outside the dunker spot on offense. In a way, he's kind of like a really, really JV version of Ben Simmons to me, probably not quite as good of a defender, but I'm just wondering where you sort of see him projecting out. Does he need to fill out, like obviously he gets the Chris Bosch comparison all the time. Like, does he need to be able to fill out that corner three to be effective in the league? Or or is he somebody that can find that effectiveness in other ways? Well, Carl, based on how the minutes that he played alongside DeAndre Jordan in the Pacers game went, I would say you are absolutely correct, at least for the next few seasons, about Nick Claxton being able to be effective outside of the dunker spot. Uh, I mean, if he develops a three-point shot, awesome. It's really, really tough to expect it from an athletic seven footer who wasn't really known as a shooter. I think, I think when he was going into college, people thought that he could shoot and there's some highlights of him knocking down threes, but he's not really a shooter. He's not somebody that has gravity. He's not even looking to shoot in the Nets offense right now. I mean, Jared Allen's looking to shoot more threes than Nick Claxton is, but the ball handling is interesting in that then I think that's probably the thing that I like the most about him because he gives me hope as somebody that can be that secondary playmaker, find open cutters and turn the nets into that more aesthetically pleasing offense in the future where, as you said, the goal is to have a, uh, an effect, efficient and effective offense. And I think that could lend to it. So I'm not, I'm not really sure where you fit him in. I think if he develops a shot, his slot on offense becomes much more different and much more versatile than if he doesn't. And if he doesn't, it's going to have to be a Jared Allen-esque type of development where you hope he puts on weight and you hope he can compete a little bit with guys that are much bigger than him that are efficient post players where Allen has showed flashes of that this season. And I I still feel very positive about his future with the team. Uh, I think he does a lot of the little things that aren't quite noticed by fans. But I think that's one of two routes, right? Either he figures out how to shoot, and if he figures out how to shoot, then he's going to get the ball a lot more on the perimeter, and that can open up some of that ball handling, some of that playmaking ability. And if he doesn't, he might get the ball running towards the rim, and he's going to be able to dump that off to a couple other players. He'll be an efficient guy, but he'll be a role player, and that'll be the peak of where he is, a guy that fits into offenses and maybe elevates them a little bit by making passes. And uh, one thing I love that when we're trying to point out positives this season, the only thing that we can tie it back to is reminiscing about the magical season that was 2018, 2019. Give me more Rondé. I'm all for it. Well, well, I mean, just, just, just looking at Claxton, right? Like I think um, yeah, I've kind of tried to game out sort of like, what are his, what are the best case scenarios with him? And so in terms of how he relates to this particular core, so I, I feel like probably the, the number one best case is he actually makes Allen essentially expendable. So you could feel comfortable, including Jared Allen in a deal, figuring that Claxton could take those minutes and you don't necessarily need to get back 
you, you don't need to worry about losing Allen and having a huge drop off, even if it does mean you bring in, you know, a third center essentially. Um, so that's sort of like, to me, the absolute best case. And, and I, and I do feel like kind of when we're talking about his handle and stuff like that, like if he was in a position where he was playing just straight up center, like if he, if he was just playing instead of Allen here, or if he was playing instead of Jordan, like, I feel like that's where that additional skill becomes like an additive thing that can be added in as opposed to looking at him as a non-shooter, because I feel like the way the Nets play right now, you really can't afford, you really need to have four shooters on the floor at all times. Um, and they've proven time and time again that they try to do that regardless of the quality of that fourth shooter sometimes. So, you know, I, I feel like him, you know, I'm, I'm super glad he's getting those minutes on the bench, you know, playing the four. I, I think that that speaks a little bit more to where Rody's at probably than, than where he is. Um, but, you know, good for him to try to develop in that way. But I, I do feel like realistically in terms of fitting with this team, it's got to be as a five, uh, not really as a four, unless they're going to go and get a stretch five and, and open things up in a different way. Um, but so, so looking at his, sorry, going back to kind of his outcomes, right? The best would be he's able to free up Jared as a trade chip. I guess second best would be people find him intriguing enough that he can be a meaningful trade sweetener or even you know a lower grade trade piece himself. Um, and those are really the two that I see in terms of him making an impact with this core. I mean, do you see uh, other ways? Not really. And I, I, it's what I'm looking through his stats and it's really tough to pull out what is noise and what is a result of his effort on the court. Um, the Nets defense has been so bad with him out there, but I also just think that's a product of the Nets defense being really, really bad. And also when he's out there, he's not playing with the starters. He's playing with the bench players um, who the bench his defense has been way worse than the starters because typically DeAndre Jordan is playing with those folks, although he has started a few games much to our uh I just, I just have no idea why, why he's been out there. I, guess I don't mind, really I don't mind him, star- him starting. I, I don't, you know, as long as he stops, you know, I don't want him playing with the starting unit the whole game, but I don't mind if he starts the game. He's kind of good at jump balls. Given the cool bogey. Right. Like throw, throw him out there, throw him, <laughs> uh, throw him out there for a couple minutes. And uh, <laughs> if he catches a few lobs, keep him on. <laughs> Well, he can't catch. I mean, he can catch the lob, but not in air. Um, there's an article about how uh, DeAndre Jordan and Andre Drummond are like the top two jump ball player, like jump jump ball jumpers, winners in the league. Is pretty interesting. Rob Perez on the Action Network, of course. Worldwide Wob. <laughs> Worldwide Wob, one of the best, one of the best handles for sure. We, I think you and I did get individual handles. What do you think? Probably. For now, we'll talk about Nick Claxton's handles, though. Yes, indeed. Yeah, but he—I mean—he really has been the lone bright spot. And I, I actually think that he could turn into something. And um, I mean, ideally, you'd want him to be somebody that you can run the offense through as a big man, because I think those are the most valuable guys, right? Somebody like a—and he's never going to be like this type of guy, but somebody like a cat or somebody like a Sabonis, where he's not a black hole when you give him the ball, and you—you you at least have to think twice as the defense about collapsing on him, whether he's in the lane or he's on the perimeter. I really think that's the secondary thing that can open up the Nets offense if he figures out how to make plays regardless of how he is being used. So it's not one of those, hey, when this guy gets the ball, 
you know what he's going to do with it. Um, and if so, I think we're going to be able to play him at the four and the five spot. But if not, I think he's going to have to be at that dunker spot. So he's surrounded by shooters. So it makes it very, very tough to collapse on him, even though that's what teams are going to want to do, knowing that he's going to take it right to the hole and try to dunk. So I really think that's the one thing that can open up his offense and allow us to play him in multiple different lineups and combinations and allow him to elevate the games of other folks. Now you're drunk, Brett. Ha! Talking about him being being Carl Anthony Towns. Get out of town here. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think he's great. I think, uh, I mean, to me, I think the realistic ceiling for him is somebody that can drill a corner three from time to time and can play the five but guard the four or potentially switch out onto three. Yeah. Hey, if that happens, that's a huge win for, what was he drafted at, 31? Yeah, he was drafted with the New York Knicks uh, first first pick of the second round. Oh, God, even better. Even more incentive to turn him into a great player. <laughs> All right, what other, what oh, other positives we got? Do we have any other positives? I don't know. I mean, I, I just called out the schedule. I guess the next three games are, are not so uh, not so terrible. Uh, and then and then we do have the back-to-back home-and-home home, uh, sandwiched around Thanksgiving uh, Wednesday before Friday after Thanksgiving with a uh, home and home with Boston. So that should be uh pretty spicy with Kyrie going back there. Uh, yeah. We get that, the, we get the Kings without De'Aaron Fox too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Kings on the road that comes at an opportune time, you know, the Knicks never a non opportune time. And, and even beyond that, right? Like, I mean, the heat game, I guess will be kind of tough Then the Hawks then you got the, the Hornets again and, and the Nuggets uh, in Barclays uh, followed by the Hornets again. So, Really, like, I think that the one thing that's disconcerting is, like, you know, you remember that gauntlet from last season. It's like you look at kind of where the Nets are now, sort of muddling through the Eastern Conference. And the good news is, you know, you got some teams that you figured were going to be in the mix a little bit more, like the uh, Magic and, um, you know, maybe a couple others that, that aren't quite doing as well. So there's certainly playoff spots available, but it's like the Nets haven't played the Raptors, they haven't played the Bucks, they haven't played. Uh, the Celtics, they haven't played, you know, a lot of these teams, the Sixers, they haven't played really the upper echelon of the Eastern Conference aside from the Pacers, who I'm probably too generously including there. Uh, and they certainly have looked like absolute dog crap against the the Pacers. So, you know, that, that's worrisome, I think. Yeah, like you said, it gets rough on the 27th. We play the Celtics back-to-back games, Heat, Hawks. Maybe we maybe we beat the Hornets again. Who knows? <laughs> and then it's, that's when we start doing uh, Sixers, Raptors. I think that's really where we're going to find out if this team is going to make a significant playoff push or if we're going to need one of those epic post-All-Star break runs to make Nets fans believe that we can scratch the eighth seed. Now – I, staple, I would say a staple of the Andre Blatch era Nets, as I recall. Uh, abs- absolutely, that last half, team. Wake up and then you know go on a run in February. Uh, that's the Mirza Toledovich Nets to you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Who could forget that? I, I, okay, one positive is this has been a really, really rough season for the Nets so far, and we're still in the seventh seed. So <laughs> maybe that's a positive, despite our point differential and despite playing so poorly and having our two best our two best players that were expected to play this season out. So there, there's another one for you. I'm, I'm grasping at straws here. I mean, I do. I mean, I do feel like you know 
like just being realistic, like the Nets easily could have won the Timberwolves game. They easily could have won the Grizzlies game. They easily could have won a couple other games. I mean, they've managed to blow a 15 point lead in almost every game. So that's like not great, but, and they could have lost the Knicks game. They could have lost a couple others that they did win, but you know, let's aside from the two Pacers games and the Suns game, like they, they haven't really been getting kind of blown off the court, uh, in every game either. So yeah, I mean, hey, we're third in the Eastern conference in points per game. <laughs> yeah. So we got that. Look at that first. baby. Boom. Also, they didn't sign Carmelo Anthony who looks like he's wearing a training bra right now. Thank God. Yeah. We signed somebody that can probably help us with Amon Shumpert who was signed to make deflections. Oh, right. I about Amon yeah. Excited. I, 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 you know, listen, I mean, I know it's been, the early returns aren't uh, terribly uh, convincing, but I think he's somebody that can really help just for all those reasons that we talked about in terms of somebody that can play positive team defense and help with kind of just communication and, and that kind of role out there. You know, early box office returns aren't great, but critics think he has a real, real chance of becoming a cult classic as the season goes on. <laughs> I'm on the Criterion Collection, Shumper. <laughs> this summer, a movie. Line of date films. All right. Shumptown well, Coffee. Brett, I think we should probably we should probably wrap this guy up. Uh, you want to take sure. it out? <laughs> yeah, let's take it out. Well, do you, are you going to tell the people where they can find us on the social media? Hey, you can find us at Russell and Fro on the Twitters. Uh, you can email us at Russell and Fro at gmail.com if you would so like. You only uh, need one at there. Oh, that's true. Two ats. At, at us. Um, you know, you that's a great get, album by Pink Floyd, too. It's true. You can download it on. Uh, Stitcher? iTunes. You can Stitcher, <laughs> Pocket Cast, Spotify, you know, wherever you get podcasts. You guys know where to listen to podcasts. Hell, you're listening to this podcast right now. Why the heck do we have you to tell you? Upon it. Maybe it just appears on your phone and you give it a listen. That's cool. We like that. Go rate us five stars. Thanks or, for listening, Sean. Or don't. That's fine. That's too right. much. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just don't worry about it. We appreciate <laughs> it. You guys have been listening all this time because we're, we're still having a good time despite the net season. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. We're out.